everybody. We are in our third week of I Love You to Death and Back. And before we get into the text, I want to spend a minute praying with you. And wherever you are, I just want to ask you to, to take a deep breath, to kind of still yourself. And even though this is still an unusual way to worship, I want us to set our expectation that God will meet us where we are. And so let's, let's all pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would meet us as we are and where we are, whether that be in our, our living rooms or our kitchens, our bedrooms. We ask that you would be who you have always been and meet us in that space. We ask that you would open up our hearts, spots where we may need you to soften us or may need you to expose parts of ourselves that we've hidden even from ourselves, we, we ask that you would move there. Open our eyes to see you clearly. Open our ears to hear you. We ask that you would use this time to re-identify us with you. Thanks. In your name. Amen. In the first week of this series, just a reminder, as we started I Love You to Death and Back, we talked about the idea of I Love You to Death. I talked to Nikki, my wife, and my sister Heather, and they, they helped me remember that it was my grandma Lamb who used to say I Love You to Death. She had a lot of those little pithy stitch sayings, and that was one of them. And, and so she would say I Love You to Death, which was such a meaningful sentence, and yet it didn't really change anything. I mean, I felt loved, but at the end of it, if you love somebody to death, you're dead and they're loved. We make great movies about that. We, we love it, stories of this, but it doesn't necessarily change anything. Power doesn't change. But Jesus, he said, I love you to death and back. In that first week, we talked about the power that he took to death and brought back to life and that you and me are back alive again because of the power of Jesus loving us to death and back. Last week we talked about the result of that power. The condemning voices that we all know way too well, those voices can't stick. Those voices don't have an ultimate say, and though they might bark, they can't really bite. And the only voice that really matters is the Holy Spirit within us, who's crying out in our own language, Abba, Father, calling out to God saying that we belong in him. And in this week, this week we're talking about if, if those voices, if the noise actually quiets, who are you? Who am I? See, I found in life, as soon as quiet hits us, we seem to make noise. As soon as our identity is questioned, we seem to scurry to create a new one. And I, I find this even in my own life. My kids are getting older. They're not really dependent on me for much anymore. I'm still a dad, but I'm a dad in a different way. And it makes me wonder, who, who really am I? In this season, I've talked to quite a few people who are like, hey, without sports, I don't know who I am. I don't know how I spend my time. I don't know who I identify with. I've kind of lost my tribe just with sports not being live. Some people without stores and places to go purchase, they, part of their identity has changed. Or without music venues and restaurants 
It, it might be just things that we do, but we so identified with it that we've lost part of who we are. And there's a lot of us who are asking, who am I? Well, this morning we're going to address this question. But first, another question that comes up. Anytime that we talk about us in church, there's a fair number of us who say, well, we should only be talking about Jesus. Why are you talking about me in church? I'll go talk about me in therapy, or I'll go talk about me with friends, but why in church are you talking about me? We should be talking about Jesus. And I understand that. And I think everything should be Christ-centered. But I want, I want to point something out. When we really, truly live like we are loved, we live completely different. Let me give you an example. I knew that I loved Nikki when I met her. You know, a little bit after, I was like, this is the girl I want to marry. I didn't know what she felt about me. And so I spent all my time hoping that she liked me, wondering what was wrong with me, wondering how I could change myself. All my time was spent on me. When I didn't know that I was loved, I, I was very me-focused. And then, then when I kind of soaked in the idea that my wife, or who became my wife, really loved me, I don't think about me so much. When I think about the fact that I am loved, I'm usually thinking about her. I'm thinking about ways that she shows me that she loves me, sacrifices that she's made, and even, even things that... I once took as what I like, start to become what we like. So if it's just me and I'm going to get a meal, I'm probably going to go get like Thai food. I like Thai food. Or definitely I'm going to go get seafood. Fish tacos are my favorite. But Thai food, it makes her lips swell up kind of like in the movie Hitch. And seafood, she just has nothing to do with it. So when we're together, it's not really a big sacrifice. I'm not sitting thinking about what I don't have or thinking about me. I'm just thinking when we're together, we like Mexican food. That's what we like. And when we're together, we go do what we like. And I'm alive and I'm not sitting consumed about what I'm anxious about or what I'm fearful or in insecurity. Instead, I'm living loved. And joy is more accessible. Hope is more accessible. When we live like we are loved, we live totally different. And so let me remind you who you are. In 1 John 3, 1, we see this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. I love that word, lavished on us. That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. If you're a parent or an aunt or uncle, you've spent time with, with kids at different points, and you've had to correct them. And they've challenged your, your correction, most likely. You've said, hey, you need to finish your plate. And they say, why do I have to finish my plate? Or, hey, you need to carry your plate to the sink. And they say, why do I have to carry my plate to the sink? Or you need to wash that plate and put it in the dishwasher. And they say, why do I have a dishwasher if I have to wash the plate first? Whatever, they're talking back. And most likely, if you're like me, your answer is, because I said so. Because I said so is my default in the house. I use it so much, even when my son wants to play a video game, and I say, hey, go play your video game. And he's like, no, it's okay, I don't have to. And I say, I know that's what you want, and I want you to be happy. Go play because I said so. This verse, 1 John 3, 1, is the kindest because I said so ever. Hear this again. 
See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. You are children of God because he said so. You might not feel like you deserve it. You might feel like you should be something else. Whatever. That's your issue. Work through it with the Holy Spirit. You are children of God because he said so. You are called. You are named. Your identity is a child of God. And as that sinks in, as it sinks in for me that I'm a child of God, I don't think about me as much. As I realize that I'm a child of God, my anxieties go away. The ways that I used to hate myself or cut myself down or compare myself to other people, those shrink. They start to slip away as I realize I'm a child of God, as is, right now. I'm his child. And interestingly, my interests start to become our interests. And so the things of God become what I am interested in because we're in this together. My father, myself, we're in this together. I'm his child. We're transformed as we live like we're loved. Jesus tells us this story, this beautiful story that is really one of the, the greatest short story ever told. And I want you to imagine it as I talk to you about it. I want to imagine yourself in this story. It's a story about a son who goes away from his father. And he takes from his father. He takes everything that he was due to inherit. He takes everything so that he can go live. But, and he goes to squander. But reality is, it doesn't matter how it's squandered. The fact is this son is leaving the father to go be somebody. He's going to go carve his own identity out. He's going to stand on his own two feet. He's going to go buy some boots and then pull himself up by the bootstraps. He's going to figure this thing out. And so the son, whatever the reason you and I went away, well, the son went away from the father. And he got this full inheritance and he was sent out with love, and yet he squandered the full inheritance. He found his life in complete ruin. In fact, he was eating slop that was meant for pigs. And his job was to care for the pigs, so he was even stealing from the animals that he was caring for. And in that moment, as he sat in that low place, Luke records in chapter 15, verse 17, he recalls that this son remembers and thinks how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare but i am dying of hunger i will get up and go to my father so the son's life is in ruin he set out to carve out an identity of his own and it didn't work he's got nothing left he's starving he's sure that he's going to die and he thinks of the servants and the people who work for his dad. And he thinks, I'm going to go back and I'm going to go work for my dad. Because surely he'll let me in. Surely he'll let me work for him. And so as he walks back, he starts rehearsing this speech. He starts working on what he's going to say. How on his, on his words he's going to earn a place with his father. He works on this speech that will convince his father to give him another chance. And so the whole way back, he's working on the speech. And I don't know how he walks. I don't know how he does it. Because he's almost dying. How do you walk in the hot sun 
without food and water. And yet he has so much just hope that maybe as I give this speech, it'll change my, my dad's heart towards me. But as he walks back, he's risking a lot because he left very publicly. You ever do that? He left publicly. He left with his father's riches. And the community's task was, well, they were to never let him back. The community's task was to not let the father have a change of heart. In fact, it was Hebrew law that if the son ever came back, the neighbor was to pick up stones and stone the son. The son was to die because it was so disrespectful how he went another way, how the identity of being the father's son was not enough. The community was supposed to stone him. That was their role. And so he walks back, and the father sees the son far off in the distance. And the father hikes up his robe, and he runs to the son. Now, yeah, he's ecstatic to see his boy, but I also believe he's outrunning those stones. I also believe he's seeing the son before the neighbors see the son, before the neighbors pick up stones and give him the death that he deserves. The father's there to absorb the stones and to speak something different over the son's life. And we pick up in, in this, in verse 21. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fattened calf and this son, uh, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is powerful stuff. The son is coming back, risking death at the neighbors, hoping that his speech might argue to get the father on his behalf and the father runs out stopping the neighbors from stoning him the slaves are running after the father because after all men in this culture don't run like that and the slaves are coming out after him there's fear of violence all of this the son starts his speech and the father cuts him off because he's not going to be argued into this one the son isn't going to negotiate his place in the house this isn't because he's good with his words. This isn't because he's so good at working that he'll eventually work off his debt. None of it is about that. It's about the father's love. That's the core of everything here. And so the father stops the speech because the speech will never be enough. I mean, you get that? If it's up to your words and my words, our words will never be enough. And in kindness, the father stops the speech. It says, that best robe, go get it. And that ring and those sandals. Put the ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And that fattened calf, go kill the calf. Go call the neighbors who are supposed to be here for his death and call them together to celebrate his life. We're together. We're whole. And the son walks back into the father's house walks into the place where he had made his bold declaration that his, he was independent and free of his father and the identity of being in that house. He walks back in. His identity is restored. He's surrounded by the neighbors who would have been holding stones to kill him, and instead they've got glasses, glasses of wine and plates filled with the fattened calf. They're there to celebrate the arrival of this son 
who, who was prodigal, who was gone, who was out. But the father has enough love to bring him home. It's at this moment that this young man has a choice. This young man is wearing the father's robe. The young man has sandals and a ring. What's he going to do? He's surrounded by people who knew what he had done. Surrounded by people who know the whole story. And know the, the unquestionable love that the father has shown. The grace that the father has shown. What is this man going to do? Is he going to act like he earned it? Like he got this ring and robe and sandals on merit. Either because his words were sharp because he's going to be such a good worker for his dad? Or is he going to act like he didn't earn it and live in shame and hang his head constantly knowing that he doesn't deserve it and, and never let the story progress past the fact that he doesn't deserve it and so he's sitting in an unearned robe, ring, and sandals or will the son receive the gift and be a son again? Will he realize he doesn't deserve it? And he doesn't earn it. And yet that's not the end of this story. He never got the robe and the ring and the sandals because of who he was. He got it because of who the father was. He never got the previous inheritance because of who he was. It was because of who the father is. This whole time, this is a story about the father's love. And so which identity wins out? And for you, which identity wins out? Jesus tells us the story to tell us and show us the Father's heart towards us. We're to know the Father's heart, and the Father's heart is this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. You are a child of God because the Father said so. And his best robe and ring and sandals are what you are now to wear as a reminder, not that you are flawed, not that you have earned it, none of those kind of things. It's not this shameful thing. Instead, it's to remind you just how loved you are so these smaller identities, can we let them go? These futile attempts to earn or prove, can we let them go? Can we let the fact that the power that raised Jesus from the dead and the Holy Spirit lives within us, can we let that be enough? And this idea of our identity, can we finally let it be settled? For some of us, it's time to come home. We've been gone for a long time. We've been trying to prove ourselves. Maybe we've squandered. Maybe we think we've invested well. Maybe we think we look just like the Father, but we're doing it on our own strength. Church workers, church people, this is often us. We're trying to earn something, trying to resemble the Father, trying to build a kingdom right next to His that looks the same because we just can't get ourselves to accept the grace of the robe and the ring and the sandals. But it's time to come home. It's time to come home to the fact that you are beloved. That God has given everything for you. 
that the sacrifice has already been paid, that the calf is ready to, to be killed, to, to feast together. You see, last week we talked about no condemnation. And the Holy Spirit that calls out to the Father within us. And now we get invited to respond. Wherever you're coming from, it's time to come home. It's time to come home to the truth. That you are who your Father says you are. You are who your Creator says that you are. And once that settles into you, into the core of who you are. You won't have to think about yourself so much. You'll realize that you are thought of plenty. You won't have to live as anxious because you'll realize that you're provided for. You won't have to live as fearful because you'll realize, well, that his power is already leveraged on your behalf. He's working everything out for the good of you. It's time to come home. It's time to make room within us for the Holy Spirit to work. Now, for some of us, this is the first time. And if that's you and you feel the Holy Spirit calling out and crying out within you, then I want to invite you in just a moment. We're going to have prayer groups available. And a phone number is going to come on the screen. And I want you to go ahead and type that. There are counselors there who would love to counsel you, who would love to speak to you, who would love to pray alongside of you and help give words and help give encouragement to you. For others of you, You've been home and back and home and back. You find your identity in Christ one week and then you go try it on your own for a month. You live parallel to God and establish something that is kingdom-like. But it's time to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's time to live loved. In a moment, I'll pray for you and then Again, I want to invite you to meet with these prayer counselors. It's time to allow the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does within us. That some of us, although condemnation can't stick, we still hear it. And so circumstances don't determine our lives. They, they, still, they still are loud. And above everything, you need to hear that you are a daughter most high, that you are a son of the King most high. I pray that the Holy Spirit confirms that within you. In a moment again, meet our prayer counselors at the number provided, but right now I want to pray over all of us as a family, all wearing the best robes, rings, and sandals, not because we deserve it, not because we can articulate things well, but because our Father said so. It's enough for him. Then may that be enough for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving well. Thank you for loving patiently. Thank you for declaring that we are loved above everything else. Thank you for declaring that our identity is in you and nothing else. Thank you that there is nothing we can do to earn, deserve, articulate, argue, but that your best is just given to us. And so because of that, I pray that you would help us to surrender the desire to earn or argue or articulate. 
and that we would just come humbly and vulnerably. That we'd lay these lesser identities down and just be your kids. Pray that you would help us to realize that these concerns that we live within, well, we just, we can live different when we know that we are loved. And so we can hand you our depression, our anxiety, our fears. We can trust you with them. We can trust that you'll continue to work within us, transforming us, reminding us in the midst of whatever we're facing, reminding us that we're loved. Jesus, thanks for what you have done. Thank you that you are now seated at the right hand of the Father and you're seated in all power and all authority. We can trust that. And Holy Spirit, thanks for your work within us. Transform us now that we might live like you love us to death and back. 